We are returning back to a series that we started way back in January in the book of Romans. This is week 20. I'm sure you remember all the last 19 sermons in this series like they just happened. <laughs> I jest. What did we cover for the last 19 weeks as we pick it up again? I showed you this little graph or chart so you can kind of understand today where we've been, where we're picking up, and then where we're still going to go. We talked about the need of the gospel. We moved into this section of how the gospel works, the way of the gospel. Shortly, in just a few weeks, we'll be stepping into the life of the gospel, how that is actually lived out in our personal lives. And then there's this really deep water of chapters 9 through 11, talking about the scope of the gospel in election, predestination, the nation of Israel, how that all works. And then a wonderful conclusion that we'll get to sometime in the future, um, how we serve out of that. But as you notice, it's all about the gospel. It is about the gospel-saturated life. Anthony and his uh, redemption story talked about how he came to believe the gospel. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? What is the gospel? We need to have that really clear in our minds. The word gospel means good news. It is the really, really good news of what God has done for us through Jesus. That while we were desperate sinners, enemies of God, that Jesus came, took on humanity, lived humanity perfectly so he could die as our substitute. The good news is that as he did that and we receive what he did for us, there's new life, there's forgiveness, and there's all that we've been talking about over these last weeks. That's the good news. And that good news saturated the Apostle Paul's life. So now by way of review, when we started our series, we saw some really clear statements about how the gospel, that message you just heard, became very personal and practical to the Apostle Paul. He starts out by introducing himself, saying, I'm a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, and what? I'm set apart for the gospel of God. We tend to have our lives, then we set the gospel somehow there as part of it. But what the Apostle Paul is saying, my whole life is set apart for the gospel. It saturated his life. A little bit later, he says, I am eager to preach the gospel. That was his message. And certainly as we read about what he wrote to the other churches, yes, there are times where he had to deal with the mess of church, but he kept coming back to, I'm eager to preach the gospel message, write about it, and tell whoever I can. He goes on to say that he's not ashamed of the gospel. And the gospel message could be something to be ashamed of because it's about a Jesus who was grossly crucified as a criminal. And you could be ashamed of that, but he understands that in that crucifixion there is the very power of God to bring life. We could be ashamed of the gospel because it's a very narrow perspective. The gospel is the only way to be reconciled to God. This was a gospel-saturated life. He writes to the church at Philippi, or Philippi, 
Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. What were those circumstances? He had been lied about, he'd been ridiculed, he'd been put in prison. He said, none of that matters because all of that that happened to me turned out that the gospel spread further and was well received. He invites young Timothy to join him in suffering for the gospel. And that's exactly what he did. Now, I looked at all of those verses and all of those statements again this week, and I asked myself the question, I'll ask you the question, is my life gospel-saturated? Is your life gospel-saturated? When we are squeezed, what comes out? Is it the message about Jesus Christ? Is it the transforming work of Jesus Christ? Or is it something else? Now, it's really easy when we read about what the Apostle Paul did and said to set the Apostle Paul apart. It says, well, that's the Apostle Paul. Of course, that's what his life should be about. And yet, I'm, I, that can't be the default because the words we're reading are inspired by God for us to encourage us and to challenge us in the same way. Every one of our lives, no matter what God has called us to do, whether we're a business owner or a manager or a project manager or a student, whatever we do in our day-to-day -day life, the gospel should be saturating us and coming out wherever God has placed us. Yes, we all have different callings, but understand, even as Anthony's testimony so well illustrated, the gospel changed us, amen? And it should still be changing us and flowing out from us. This section we covered the need of the gospel. We spent quite a few weeks in this need of the gospel. And I remember going back through that. And I remember some of you saying, man, this is heavy stuff. Because we spent week after week after week talking about the issue of sin and how it shows up. But understand, we can't fast forward through this issue of sin no matter how uncomfortable it makes us. Because if we don't recognize our sinful condition before God, then the gospel is not good news. The gospel simply becomes kind of like tabloid news that you glance at and move on because it doesn't apply to you. So this whole section starts out really really hard. It says this in Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. And we spent time talking about that idea of the wrath of God, and we misunderstand it. When you see that phrase, wrath of God, some of you are thinking of a God that's out of control, a God that is red-faced and bulging eyes, and the angels are trying to hold him back from doing something stupid. That's not the wrath of God. The wrath of God is not God out of control. The wrath of God is his appropriate response to sin. I gave you this definition it's not mine. 
Though God's wrath is God's personal emotion with regard to sin, it represents God's settled hatred of sin and his constant invariable reaction to sin. He's not out of control. He is appropriately responding as a holy God must to the issue of sin. We moved on to chapter 2 and we found out that the Jews of Paul's day thought maybe they got, like they didn't have to deal with any of this because they were Jews. Here's what he says as we start chapter 2. Therefore, Jewish people, you have no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment, for in that, you, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. And that was a great reminder for me, I hope for all of us, that we all need the gospel, regardless of our ethnicity, regardless of our particular sin in the past or even in the present. And we very easily classify sins and somehow excuse us, excuse ourselves from the issue. And then this whole section ended. What then? In chapter 3, verse 9, are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. That was one of many places, if you remember, where that phrase Jews or Greeks, Jews or Gentiles are used, and it's code for saying everybody, because in the minds of the Jewish people of the Apostle Paul's day, there were Jewish people and then there was everybody else. And he said, the Jews and all of the Gentiles, and all of the Greeks. Everybody is under sin. And that's a unique way of saying it. It's the first time he says it that way in the letter, referring to this idea that sin has bound us and buried us and controlled us, and it's universal for everybody. But then we moved on to the next section, the way of the gospel. And this was like a breath of fresh air. After all those weeks talking about how much we need the gospel, then we read this, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifest. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. The way of the gospel is the way of faith. It's repeated two times there. It means absolute surrender. It's not a a mental agreement with something. It's a complete surrender to something. This tells us the way of the gospel is the way of grace. It's not earned. It's not merited. Don't think of faith as something that you did to earn his salvation. Faith is simply a response to what he has done for you. We see in that text as well, it's a way of justification. By his grace, through faith, we are declared not guilty. That's what the word justified means. We're declared not guilty. A bit later, we find out this then is a way of humility in chapter 3, verse 27. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by faith. For we maintain that a man is 
justified by faith apart from the works of the law. We don't boast in receiving a gift. What do we do in response to receiving a gift? We are grateful. We recognize we didn't earn it and we didn't deserve it. He then goes on to say, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. In that section, we talked about the way of the gospel is the way of righteousness. Now, this troubled some of you when we went through this because I said, certainly by his grace through our faith, there is forgiveness and that is essential, but that is not enough. We can't just be forgiven. We must then be made righteous and that's what is in the gospel. In the end, we can't just stand before God forgiven. We need to stand before a holy, righteous God, righteous. And whose righteousness is that? Of course, it's Jesus Christ's righteousness that has been given to us. Imputed is the theological word to our account. Now, why is that important? It's important for a number of reasons, but one is very, very practical, and we dealt with it at the time. If I live out my life, my Christian life, simply as somebody that is a forgiven sinner, then my life will live up to that, or I would say down to that. I'm just a forgiven sinner. While that is true, that is not all we are. We are also, according to Scripture, a righteous saint. And if we identify ourselves that way, then we live up to something, not down to something. You see how that works itself out? So this idea, well, I'm just a sinner forgiven by God. That is true, but if that's all you are, you're missing the fullness of the gospel message. You are a saint made righteous by Jesus Christ. And then we ended on this verse a number of months ago, and not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received, say that word there, reconciliation. You put all of that together. By grace through faith we're declared not guilty, we're justified. By grace through faith we are declared righteous, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Therefore, by grace through faith we are reconciled back to our Creator. We have peace with God. We're no longer enemies of God. And this reconciliation is not something we accomplished, but is something that has been accomplished for us. What you just experienced was 19 weeks of sermons in about 10 minutes right there, all right? So now we move on to some new ground, so to say. I love this section. We're going to touch just a couple verses today. It goes on for a number of more that we're going to pick up next week. Here's our text today. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 14 Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the loss, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. 
Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who is to come. Let's pray right now. Ask God to help us. Father, we submit ourselves to the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit right now. I pray you'd help my brothers and sisters receive what the Holy Spirit lays on their heart from the written word here, and I submit myself to you that I would not get in the way of that process, but could be helpful in it. And in the end, Father, it would be good that we've been here because we've been transformed a bit more by the power of your word. Can you say amen to that? So in the time we have left, we're going to make four points out of that text. Two are minor points. When I say minor, that doesn't mean they're not important. (laughs) It means they're not the major emphasis of why the Apostle Paul wrote these words, but they're also revealed in the words, and then we're going to end with two major points. The minor point number one, this text reveals the reality of Adam. There are some that think that the Genesis account of creation is not a literal telling of how God created the world. Therefore, Adam and Eve are not real. They weren't real people. They're part of this mythical story of how God started things that is really not literally true, but has some good things to learn from it. You're free to research that if you want, but I'll just say that is a dangerous view to take. Because you're taking the first verses of God's revealed written word to us and and not taking it as how he intended. And there's amazing doctrinal truth that comes from the first chapters of Genesis and all of Genesis. One of the basic principles of accurately understanding or interpreting and understanding God's word is that we take scripture, the words we're reading in the book, literally, unless for some reason it's very clear within that context they're meant to be symbolic or allegorical. Now I want you to notice in this text that the Apostle Paul writes this portion of Romans And he writes as if if Adam is a real man that lived a real life and sinned a real sin. And notice that in verse 14 that Adam and Moses are both mentioned and they are mentioned in a chronological context. He's saying from point A something happened to point B. Point A is Adam Point B is Moses. Is Moses an actual person who lived an actual life? Most would say yes, unless you completely reject the Bible. So if Moses is an actual person at point B, then by reason and literary consistency, Adam is also an actual person. Does that make sense? We're seeing the reality of Adam. Now, there are many other passages we could go to, but this is just the minor point. But I'll take you to Luke. The genealogy recorded in Luke, the genealogy of Jesus, there are 77 names listed in that genealogy. They're real men who married real women, who had real kids, and it all starts with Adam. So if all of those 77 names are going to be taken seriously, It starts with Adam as a real person. 
Now, again, that's not the major point the Apostle Paul is trying to make. But the words that you're reading make that point. So I just want to make that known to you. The second minor point is not just the reality of Adam, but the responsibility of Adam. Notice in our text two times, and we're going to see it more next week, that Adam is held responsible for his sin and his impact on the whole world. Verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world. Who's the one man? It's Adam. Down to verse 14, Even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. Now, it's interesting, Adam sinned there. First, it's called a sin, and then it's called an offense. Two different Hebrew words, or I should say Greek words there. The offense has more to do with a violation of a very clear command, and we'll unpack that a little bit more next week. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time here, but I don't just want to miss it. When we go back to the Genesis account... Adam did not sin first. Who did? Say it louder. I just want to make that clear. It was Eve. Now, it's interesting. In 1 Timothy 2, the Apostle Paul says it was Adam who was first created, but it was the woman who was deceived and fell into transgression. Adam is created first, but it was Eve who was deceived and sinned first. Yet many other biblical texts always refer to Adam's sin. Adam is held responsible. So this text not just reveals Adam's reality, but the responsibility that has been placed on this man. But now we ask, why? Why is Adam held responsible if Eve sinned first? I'm glad you asked that. Adam was created first. He is the one that actually had time with God before Eve was ever created. And when you go back to Genesis 2, it's interesting that God gave the command to not eat of that one particular tree to Adam before Eve was ever created. Now, I'm not saying that Eve didn't know what she was doing because I'm sure Adam communicated that to her, but men are terrible communicators. The text in Genesis clearly says that Eve knew that she was doing the wrong thing. But when God steps onto the scene, he says, Adam, where are you? Eve sinned first. Adam is called out in our text. In Romans 5, it is Adam that is noted as the one that sinned, and through Adam's sin, sin entered the world. What do we make of all of that? You know, one of the things I love to do in my job is um, when I have a chance to meet with a young couple in preparation for marriage. I don't know that I'm particularly good at it, but I really enjoy doing it, especially couples that are unbelievers, and I do that often, and especially or couples that are young in their faith. Because we go through the Genesis text, and we read it, 
And I point out that Adam is held responsible. And then I ask this young man wanting to be married, what does that mean for you as the man soon to be a husband? And that often leads to a period of silence until they begin to realize the responsibility that they are taking on in marriage. So here's the minor point, which seems major to me at times. There is a truth woven through the Bible, a little bit here, a little bit there. We see it here in Romans 5. The truth is that God holds men to a unique role of responsibility and accountability particularly in the home and in the church. The truth is that God holds men to a unique role of responsibility and accountability within the home and within the church particularly. Now, does that mean that, ladies, you can slide through life with no culpability before God? That would be nice, wouldn't it? That's not what it means. What it does mean is that we as men need to understand, going back to the very beginning, that there was a responsibility that Adam had, an accountability that he had before God, then, and, and the terrible story is it, it appeared that he actually failed miserably in his job to lead and be accountable. Men, we need to recognize and step up to this unique role of responsibility, not run from it, not pass on it, not put it off. Let me take a moment and talk to the young men here and the boys here today. One of the signs that you're maturing into biblical manhood is that you accept responsibility. You don't blame others. You don't shirk responsibility. You don't hide from responsibility. You not only take on responsibility, biblical manhood means you look forward to opportunities to take responsibility, to be accountable. God holds men, starting with Adam, to a unique role of responsibility and also accountability. Those are two minor points from this text. What's the major point? Why did the Apostle Paul really write those words to this church? What did he really want them to get? It's not about the reality of Adam while it is there. It's not about the responsibility of Adam while it is in the text. It is about the relationship between Adam to Jesus. And it's in verse 14. Look at it. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, here it is, who is a type of him who is to come. That's the crux on which this text and what happens next week hinges on. Adam is a type of this one who is to come, which is referring to Jesus. Adam is a type of Christ. The New International Version says, Adam is a pattern of Christ. Some footnotes in my study Bible say he is a foreshadowing of Christ. 
Another translation actually needs two words and it says that Adam is a symbol and representation of Christ. Now that's not a novel idea. This idea of something in the Old Testament being a type or a pattern or a picture of Jesus is throughout the Old Testament. The ark that was in the worldwide flood is a type of Jesus. The rock that Moses struck in the wilderness and the water came out is a type of Jesus. That's revealed in the New Testament. The Old Testament high priest that made the sacrifice is a type of Jesus. The very sacrifice of the Passover lamb is a type of Jesus. There are many other Old Testament types that point clearly to Jesus. And what's so amazing about that, that the Hebrew people who were so familiar with the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures, they still missed it. Sadly, because their teachers of the day didn't get it. What's the purpose of a type like we see in our text today? It's to show how two things are similar, yes, but also to show how two things can be contrasted. And the point of this type is not somehow to highlight all about Adam, but what we're going to see next week is what this type tells us about what Jesus has done and the glory and the beauty of Jesus so we will value and appreciate him even more. Now we'll go to this next week, but 1 Corinthians chapter 15 talks about Jesus being the last Adam to actually fix the things that the first Adam messed up. So here's the essential truth. We're going to hammer this just for a little bit and then we'll be done. There's two parts to this truth. One is this. All those related to Adam share in Adam's sin and in the consequence of Adam's sin. Is there anybody here not related to Adam? Now, if you do think you're not related to Adam, I'd love to talk with you because that's a novel idea. It's actually an idea that a lot of people have outside of the church, but I hope within the church we understand we are all related to Adam. Adam was the first human being created, and from him, his union with Eve, all mankind can be traced. Now, you can do the study on this, and I just did this briefly, but even when you study genetics, genetics have shown that the difference in any DNA between two humans anywhere on the globe, the difference is 0.1%. That means we are 99.9% the same genetically. It's almost like we had the same parents, right? And actually we did. But the point of the text is not the genetic similarity between Adam and and us, but the spiritual similarity, the problem that he created. We don't just share the same genetics as Adam, we share the same sin problem as Adam. To say it another way, all of us not only share Adam's physical DNA, but also his spiritual DNA. Adam sinned. Now, we could spend a lot of time trying to figure out how this knucklehead did that. In a perfect environment, when God is providing everything you need, and you make that choice. 
While we'll never figure that out, what we do recognize, the end result is that he not only sinned, he was changed at that moment. He didn't just create an act, he didn't just do an act of sin. At that moment, he became a sinner by nature. And the way we know that is if you just read on in the story, that wasn't his one-off sin, was it? <laughs> now it became a pattern. Now he had been changed. Now he was by nature a sinner. So then those of us who are his descendants are not just doing things that are sinful, we also have that same sin nature inborn in us. Look again at verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. See, we're wrapped up in that one sin of Adam. Now we've all sinned, not just in act, but in nature. Now, if we look at verse 12, it doesn't just say we share his sin, but we also share the consequence of the sin, which is what? Death, and death through sin, so that death spread to all men. Now, that shouldn't be surprising to anybody, because when God told Adam, don't do that, he said, here's what's going to happen. Go Going back to the Genesis text, the Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it, say it, you will surely die. That's really interesting in the Hebrew. It's actually the word die used twice, which just intensifies it. Literally, it would be read, dying you will die. And some say, but he didn't die so God didn't know what he was saying, but he did die. And the way we know that is when we fully understand what the biblical meaning of death is. To die is to be separated. That's the biblical understanding of, of death, to be separated. So at the moment of Adam's sin, at that moment he died spiritually. He was separated from his creator spiritually. As we read on, then he was physically separated because he hid from God, and then we keep on going, and then God physically separated both Adam and Eve by kicking them out of the garden, and then you fast forward 930 years, Adam died physically, and his spirit was separated from his body. Yes, at that moment, Adam died. And because we have his same nature, here's the really bad news, folks. When we are born, we are born spiritually dead. Just like Adam became spiritually dead at that moment. We're not just spiritually dead. Going back to what we studied in Romans, we're actually then enemies of God because of the sin and our sin nature and our connection with Adam. That's the major point of those verses. All those related to Adam, raise your hand if you're related to Adam, you share in Adam's sin and you share in the consequence of Adam's sin. 
I'm glad there's another side to this type, though. All those related to Christ, we're going to flesh this out next week, share in the righteousness of Christ and the results of his righteous life. That's the good news, amen? When we're born physically, we share in Adam's sin. When we're born again spiritually, we share in Christ's righteousness. Because of a relationship with Adam, we're spiritually dead. Because of a relationship we can have with Jesus, we're spiritually alive. Because of our connection with Adam, we are separated from God. But because of a connection we can have with Jesus, we can be reconciled to God. That's the point the Apostle Paul is driving us to. And it's part of this ongoing theme of the good news of Jesus Christ. All right, so this short passage today that was preceded by a really long review reveals the reality of Adam, the responsibility placed on Adam, the relationship of Adam to Jesus as a type, and then finally, our last point, the response we should have to that reality. This is the so what question, and I always love getting to the so what. Otherwise, so what? You just spent 40 minutes listening to something. Here's the number one, so what, the takeaway. This means we should look at everybody, including ourselves, a bit differently, more accurately. We all have the same problem. Everybody you see was born with the same problem. Our hearts are broken by sin. Our attitudes have been distorted. Yes, that is manifested in all kinds of different ways. But it all stems from the same nature that is descended or is given to us by Adam. It's a heart problem. It's a nature problem. It's not primarily an action problem. Jeremiah 17, 9. Jeremiah says, The heart is more deceitful than all else, and it's desperately sick. Who can understand it? Why is our heart so desperately sick? Because we're connected to Adam. Now that description of everybody's heart plays itself out differently. Some people hide really well their deceitful, desperately sick heart. Others display it very proudly and destructively. But it doesn't matter how it's displayed or how it's hidden. The point is, the problem is the heart. It's the nature of man. Now, the reason I'm kind of highlighting this here is because I think we'd all agree it's easy for us to simply look at what people do and make judgments. We rank people, we classify people, we see their actions, we put them in a certain category. But the fact of the matter is, according to this text, everybody's in the same category. It just looks differently for different people. Sometimes it's very repulsive. And honestly, sometimes it looks very religious. But still, a sin problem in the heart. So this should cause us to look at ourselves and other people differently, and then it should cause us to look at the work of Jesus differently or more accurately. 
All that Jesus did in coming, taking our humanity, living it out perfectly, and being our substitute was aimed at changing our heart, not at fixing our sinful actions. It's aimed at the heart change, the heart transformation. Not just to get us to do better things more often. Let me take it back to Romans 2 real quick. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the, what? Heart, by the spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from man, but from God. So that's an odd way that the Apostle Paul talks about it's a heart issue, it's not about being circumcised or something that you would do physically, externally. Let me say again, it's not primarily our problem as humans, is not primarily what we do that's wrong, it's who we are in our nature that's wrong. And what did Jesus Christ come to fix? Who we are in our nature that's wrong. This is the heart work of Jesus. And even the Old Testament prophets said that's what this Jesus was going to do. Jeremiah, the one that talked about a desperately sick heart, said this. God speaking through the prophet Jeremiah about this coming of the Messiah and says, I will put my law within them and where? On their heart. I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. The desperately sick, deceitful heart can be changed because the very law of God can be placed on it and in it. The prophet Ezekiel, about the same time, almost using the exact same words, says this, God speaking through Ezekiel, moreover, I will give you a what? Say it, new heart, and I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances." Christ did not come to simply help us modify or improve our behavior or to help us help ourselves be better. Now that text in Ezekiel says that change of heart does work itself out in our walk and how we live, but we can't get the cart before the horse. Now if we fail to realize this, if we don't hold on to this truth, we slide into moralism. We slide into religion. We become no different than the ones that Jesus called a whitewashed tomb. Looking really good, but being desperately sick and dead on the inside. If we don't remember this, the focus of our lives, even individually and in our life together, be, becomes about trying to just do a bunch of things better. While that would be wonderful, that is impossible to happen unless God changes us at the heart level. 
Did I say that enough different ways to drive home that point? I read of a commercial realtor, this was actually in London, who was trying to sell a piece of property that had a huge warehouse on it. The problem is it had been vacant for a long time, it needed repairs, it had been vandalized, the windows were broken, doors were damaged, trash was everywhere. Every time he showed the property, he would tell the potential buyer, I'm going to fix it, I'll repair, I'll fix the windows, I'll clean up all the trash, but still nobody was interested because it was such a mess. Until one buyer came to him and said, forget about the repairs. When I buy this place, I'm going to build something completely different. I don't want the building, I just want the site. Can I remind all of us that Jesus has no intention of coming into our lives simply to make a few repairs. So we look a little bit better. Have a little nicer marriage. Treat our Co-workers nicer. Now, when Jesus comes into our lives, he says, I make all things new. When he comes into our life, he says, we become a new creation. We're born anew. The old things are gone. See, who we are in Adam can be completely undone by being in Christ. And our hearts are changed. That's the big what if. So what of this text. Now, if that's taken place in you already, can I just encourage you to rejoice? Just rejoice again that God did something inside of you and say thank you. As we think about moving towards communion, approach that table just rejoicing that everything that's good in your life came from him because he changed your heart. Now, if you're here today and your spiritual journey is real rocky right now and you've seen that sin has kind of taken root in your life, I would say confess and then rejoice. Confess that to God because he knows it's already there. And what you're receiving in the bread and the juice is sufficient for all of our sin. Amen? Maybe you're here today and life is just ugly. It's overwhelming. You don't know how you're going to get through this week. As you come to the table, I would say remember... And then rejoice. Remember that he's gotten you this far, right? He's gotten you to this point, and he's made that wonderful promise in Scripture that what he began in you, he will see through to completion. And then rejoice. And I don't know, all of you, I don't know your hearts especially, if you're here today and this is like now that makes sense, and you've never really repented and turned to Jesus for your salvation to be made new, I would say repent and then rejoice. Repent, turn to Jesus. Recognize that these elements are your salvation, not in the physical sense as you take them, but they represent all that Jesus has done for you. Well, let's pray as we conclude. 
Father, we are so thankful. Yet again, we're just thankful for for what you've done. Yeah, the sufficiency of Jesus is highlighted yet again today. To not just fix peripheral things, but to actually change our hearts. So as we come to communion, help us rejoice in that. Help us celebrate that again. Help us seriously recognize this wonderful work that you've done and that you're continuing to do in us. So yeah, I pray for my brothers and sisters that, uh, Lord, this thing we do every month would not just be done tritely, but with a sense of clear focus on Jesus, with a, with a wonderful rejoicing in all that we have in Jesus. So prepare us as we sing. Thank you for this wonderful reminder. We're going to sing a few songs together, and then if you're new with us, there's tables around the room. As you sing these songs of just wonder about the love of God and how it's worked in your life, uh, use it to prepare, and then you can come to the tables. Parents, again, I'll just remind you, this is the time of discipleship with your kids. Help them understand this. May God work among us even through this. Mm -hmm.